0: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. In certain cities, parking may seem like a scarce commodity, especially when you're circling the block in search of it. But in the United States, there are three to eight spots for every car, depending on whom you ask. Municipal codes that dictate how much parking buildings are required to offer has changed urban density, the cost of housing, and the amount of time drivers spend on the road. In his new book, Paved Paradise, Slate staff writer Henry Gerbar makes the compelling case that the simple, rectangular parking spot has changed the city as we know it. Yet in the past two decades, many people have begun to question the parking paradigm and sought to banish outdated parking minimums, repurpose disused garages, and reimagine the way we use the space we've just automatically allotted to cars. Henry Grabar joins us this week to talk about what those visionaries are up against and what new world potentially awaits us. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Henry. Pleasure to be here. So how did you first get interested in the story of parking lots in the U.S.?
1: Well, I'm a reporter at Slate, and I write about cities. So I write about architecture and infrastructure and affordable housing and the environment and climate and all that stuff that comes together in big cities. And I started to find that in subject after subject, the thing that was at the core of the question I was trying to answer was parking, whether it was Why does this affordable housing project cost so much to build? Why can't we have a bike lane here? Why does my house flood now when it didn't before? And you'd look under the hood, and under every single hood, you'd find parking, the subject that is so integral to the way everything works in this country, and yet so rarely discussed, at least in the context as a big system that we should think seriously about managing and even perhaps fixing. Um, Don Shoup, who's the Pope of Parking Studies, likes to say that whatever the question, the answer is parking. And that certainly seemed to be the case in the reporting that I was doing as well.
0: <laughs> it is a such a sometimes underground site, so to speak, uh, that it can be, I think, hard to put a number on the scale of parking in the U.S. and and even especially because it feels so scarce sometimes, even when it's really not.
1: Yeah, it, that, this, is a, this is sort of the paradox of parking, is that it manages to be, at the same time, so abundant as to be the largest single use of land in many American cities. There is more space for parking in this country than there is for housing. All that is true on the one hand. And then on the other, obviously, um, there are times when it does seem like it can be awfully hard to find a parking space.
0: You point out pretty early on that like sometimes when people are talking about parking, they're talking about parking and a lot of the time they're actually talking about something else entirely or using parking as a shield for their less uh, politically correct views, shall we say. And you open, you open the book with a, an example of when they're obviously not just talking about parking in Solana Beach, California, with the developer Ginger Hitzke's quest to build affordable housing in a city parking lot. Can you talk about that example and like what spoke to you so much about it that you wanted to devote basically a whole chapter to it?
1: Well, I knew going into this that parking was a major impediment to the creation of affordable housing in this country. And that's for two reasons. One is that it costs a lot of money. So if you're trying to build a project and people aren't, um, and, and you're not trying to like, you know, extract the maximum amount of rents or sales price as possible, then it becomes super important that you find cost savings on everything else. And parking is super expensive. It takes up like 10, 20% of the budget a lot of the time. And the second part of that is that, um, because. Most new projects in this country have to, to some degree, pass muster with uh, local political officials or with councils of neighbors or the other people who um, eventually decide what gets built. the provision of parking becomes a kind of um, a, a choke point at which people can evaluate a project and say, no, this doesn't work. There's not enough parking, et cetera. So both those things, the cost of parking and parking as a political obstacle, both those things impede the creation of affordable housing. And when I was working on this book, I knew I needed to find a project that expressed those problems in hopefully a neat little narrative package. And uh, I think I found one uh, with this project in Solana Beach, The Pearl.
0: So what happened there?
1: So Ginger Hitzke, this Southern California developer, uh, took Solana Beach up on this offer to try and create affordable housing for a dozen families that had been evicted uh, a couple decades prior. And the city offered up this little uh, parking lot not far from the beach. And they said, this is a public parking lot. You can redevelop it. This is where you can build your, uh, the affordable housing. Uh, you just have to make sure you rebuild all the public parking um, uh, underground. And Ginger, the developer, said, "Okay, works for me. Let's do it." Um, obviously, what she ended up proposing was essentially a fifty-five-space underground garage with a few units of housing on top. But those were the conditions that the city gave her, and um, and, and that's what she uh, eventually t- tried to build. And, and of course, she failed. And we can talk a little bit about that. But um, I just want to focus for a second on the the imposition that uh, you know they're trying to create housing for twelve displaced families, right? Um, you would think it would be priority number one and um and an urgent uh situation for the city. And and they, they literally spent years um dilly-dallying over a spot to to put this on. And then when they finally selected this parking lot, um they spent years arguing over whether the parking that would be rebuilt underground was the same as the parking that had initially occupied the site.
0: So why did she fail? Um, And in talking about why she failed, can you talk about some of the things that people like wrote in opposition?
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that one of the reasons she failed was that residents of Solana Beach were motivated by prejudice and they didn't want to live near low-income families and they didn't think their town was a place where those displaced families belonged. And that is super evident when you read the letters they wrote in protest of this project, when you listen to some of the testimony they gave. But as as the opposition went on, and especially as it took the form of a lawsuit, which eventually was the, was, the, was the sort of straw that broke the camel's back in stopping this project from getting built, what you began to see was opposition coalescing into something focused on parking. And I think this is this is the role that parking plays in a lot of places in this country. Is it's, it's it's considered a a kind of apolitical technocratic objection to stop any kind of change at all that might happen in the urban environment, whether it's uh, creating a bike lane, affordable housing, anything like that. Parking has become such a third rail in American politics that it can be invoked to oppose even uh, the most urgent thing uh, we can do as a society, which is to create um, housing for people who need it desperately.
0: Yeah. I mean, it feels like that story is super common. You hear variations on it everywhere in D.C., where I live, in New York, in Chicago, in, you know, further flung suburbs, smaller cities. And I'm curious how we got here. Like, how did a car's housing become more important than a person's housing?
1: That is a neat way of uh, summing it up. And I think that a few things have happened. I mean, one of them is that people who moved into cities when they were um, at their low point population-wise in the 1960s and 70s, became attached to the idea that free curb parking was something that came with the territory, that when you moved into a city, you were entitled to a place to store your car or your cars on the curb directly in front of your house. And in the last couple decades, as urban populations have rebounded, we've begun to see that expectation come under some pressure. Uh, and... To me, uh, there's a pretty direct link between that uh, sense of entitlement to public property in front of the house and the opposition to new housing. Because when you see new neighbors arriving, and especially when that new building is being built without its own parking garage, you naturally see a threat to your own, what you view as your own possession, which is the curbside in front of your house. And and so by by making, by allowing people to feel so territorial about it, we've created a space where Um, they, uh, they, they become, you know, they see new neighbors, new businesses and new development in the city through the prism of parking spaces. They see new neighbors as coming in parking space, uh, sized boxes, right? And, uh, and that's a very, that's a very toxic development. And I think that leads the way to a lot of the sort of Malthusian thinking that we see on display in many of the country cities or suburbs, this idea that this community is full, there's no more room here. Well, nobody ever says there's no more room for kids playing uh, soccer in the park, or there's no more room for people walking their dogs on the sidewalk. What they mean when they say there's no more room is there's no more room for cars. And in particular, there's no more room for parking on the street.
0: I think the story of how we got there is a super interesting part of your book. And I didn't quite realize how backwards, in hindsight, city officials had it at the time. You, you spent a lot of time in the mid-century You know, when we're starting to have city centers losing population and fleeing to the suburbs. And a lot of city officials were making the argument that building more parking downtown would prevent people from moving to the suburbs. Uh, And it seems really obvious to me that that would just encourage people to drive in from out of town. Kind of like there's this Parisian deputy mayor you speak to who has a beautiful summary of it and calls parking garages vacuum cleaners for cars like, where did this weird idea come from?
1: Well, I I think they were onto something. And the thing they were onto is that, um, they all had traffic problems. So it wasn't just that they were trying to, um, emulate what the suburbs were offering. That was part of it, but they also viewed it as a solution to their own issue. And, and they saw that issue primarily not as people fleeing at first, uh, but as traffic. And the idea that, uh, more parking as a solution to traffic is very intuitive because a lot of traffic is in fact caused by people looking for parking. So you see a lot of people looking for parking. You say, God, this congestion is strangling our city. Let's build a ton of parking lots. They'll have a place to park. Uh, and, and we'll be, we'll be done with this, with this terrible problem. But, uh, in fact, what, what happens is the more parking you build, the more people drive, uh, the less people use other modes of transportation. And you find that you haven't actually solved the, the traffic problem. But what you have done is, uh, bulldozed a lot of your city, um, to create more parking. So there is a kind of tragedy in that, but I, I, I'm sympathetic to, to, to where they were coming from and what they were thinking. Um, it just turns out it's, it's actually sort of the opposite. Um, the, the more parking you create, um, the more people wind up driving and the more traffic you have. And if you do have a traffic problem caused by people looking for parking, the answer is usually not to create more parking, but instead to think more carefully about how you manage the parking you have.
0: I'm curious if there are like examples where cities have tried stuff like that, where they have tried to sort of reverse what was done in the mid-century, say, like maybe, I don't know if we have to look as far afield as Paris, but I know Paris has gotten a lot of press, especially since the pandemic for cutting cars.
1: Well, no, I mean let's let's take a let's take a domestic example. I mean, I think um one of the examples in the book that I think is the most interesting is is what happened in San Francisco. So, San Francisco famous for having a uh this sort of like lovely pre-war urbanism that that people think is like super cute and I agree, it's very charming. Um it also had a serious traffic and parking problem, and one of the things the city planners tried uh in 2015 or so, was he said, all right, what if instead of charging the same price for all this public parking, we charge based on how badly people want to park there and how popular a particular block is? And this makes a lot of sense because like some blocks have a lot of amenities and attractions, restaurants and stores, and some blocks don't. And obviously, the parking on those busy blocks was always congested. People always were circling looking for spots, whereas the parking on those uh, unloved blocks uh, was often open and available. So what they did was they charged more for the parking on the busy blocks than on the uh, non-busy blocks. And eventually, drivers got the message. And the parking uh, occupancy evened out between the popular blocks and the unpopular blocks because on the popular blocks, it costs more to park. And in fact, the least popular place to park was, of course, in the city's uh, massive public garages. Now, nobody likes to park in a garage. That's nobody's first choice. And what they realized was the garages should be way, way cheaper. And in doing that, they actually managed to to convince these incoming drivers through these, these nudges of, of prices uh, to, 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 to think of the garage as their first choice if they were going to park for a long time. And from a city planning perspective, that's ideal, right? Somebody who's parking for 8 to 10 hours, you do not want them occupying prime space right in front of a busy restaurant.
0: What about parking minimums? You detail some pretty wild parking minimums. I think it was Detroit that required one off-street parking space for every pool table in a pool hall and then like one for every four seats in a theater. And just these like wild examples, like 228-unit apartment complex needs 475 parking spaces, stuff like that. Like what happened?
1: Well, I think it's it's born of that same mid-century problem, which is traffic, right? And, and you need to create more parking, or so the thinking went, and as a city, you can create it yourself, but you're going to have to spend a lot of public money and you're going to take property off the tax rolls by turning it into public property. So neither of those options is is particularly attractive for city planners. And so they come up with what they think is a very clever solution, which is let's force the private sector to solve this problem for us. And I don't think they realized to to, to what extent requiring every single new uh, home, office, apartment building, pool hall, theater, nunnery, tennis court, whatever it is, to include a certain number of parking spaces, I don't think they realized what a seismic effect that would have on American urbanism and architecture.
0: What kind of effect did it have? How did it change the landscape of American cities since like, the mid-century?
1: Let's take the example of a restaurant. In most cities that have parking minimums, which is most jurisdictions in the United States, building a restaurant requires um uh, one parking space for every 100 square feet of interior restaurant space. Now, a parking space is usually about 250 to 300 square feet. So already you are requiring more space for parking than you are for restaurant. And when you think about this in terms of the built environment, you think about a property, right? Half the lot is going to be parking now. Um, and, and that that's come to be an expectation of like how we think about commercial areas in the United States. But it's pretty clear that if that's the standard you set – you are going to make it impossible to build or even renovate the kinds of buildings that made up the pre-war American downtown, the pre-war Main Street, types of neighborhoods we love so much. I mean, all that stuff is illegal to build.
0: Yeah. The prevailing theme is the cost of parking. Uh, And you mentioned at the top of the episode, Don Shoup, the Pope of parking, who wrote this book called The High Cost of Free Parking. One could even say, you know, the high cost of just Parking period. Um, can you talk about, you know, Don and his influence since the book came out in, in 2005?
1: Yeah. So Don has uh, the distinction of both being um, an incredible scholar of this field that he sort of rediscovered and, and pioneered that had been all but ignored, and also a really nice guy. And he's funny and he's generous. And he had this sort of cohort of graduate students. And, and indeed, many people further afield as well who were convinced by the theories that he outlined in this book that essentially parking was too cheap and there was too much of it. And, uh, and we would made some big mistakes and, uh, and, and he has been a, a willing figurehead of this, of this movement, which, uh, they go on Facebook by, uh, by the name of the Shoopistas, the followers of Don Shoop. And, uh, they're everywhere. They're all around you. I mean, I think, In almost every city in America now, there is somebody who has read Don's book and is, like, super into parking reform. And I get it. It's, like, it's so intuitive and appealing. You don't need to be a a traffic engineer or a rocket scientist to look around and be like, damn. Like, when we think about car culture and we think about its effects on American society, parking really is the thing because a car spends 95% of its time parked and parking takes up more room than the roads, than the, you know – automobile factories, the dealerships, any of that other stuff. I mean, it's all parking.
0: So it's been 18 years. What have the chupistas accomplished?
1: Well, they have, uh, even since I started writing this book, they have had enormous success in getting cities to get rid of these parking minimums. So starting with Buffalo, New York, and Hartford, Connecticut, about six years ago, um, a number of cities, including San Francisco, Minneapolis, San Jose, and even some states like California, Oregon, and Washington have made huge strides in saying, you know what, these types of buildings no longer need to include um, a mandatory required amount of parking. Now, I think what's interesting about this is you could say, well, did this parking really get built as a result of the laws? Or is this just what Americans wanted? You know, everybody wants a parking space at the restaurant. So maybe what we want is actually a restaurant that's that's half parking. And there have been some experiments in this. And and there have been some interesting results. And I, I think what the results show is that in fact, uh, the laws were forcing us to build more parking than people actually wanted. And I'll, and I'll give you an example of that, which is in uh, Seattle, which started a reform like this in 2012. And after the reform was passed, permitting developers to build as much or as little parking as they wanted, um, the city of Seattle approved 60,000 housing units. 70% of them had parking anyway. Sure, sure. Makes sense. You know, it's America. Everybody has a car, wants to drive. But they built 40% less parking than had been required before. So the laws were actually mandating quite a bit of parking that wound up going unused and cost a lot of money and wormed its way into the rents on all those new units. And in fact, the city, uh, the, the builders of these units built 18,000 fewer parking spaces than would have been required. And they saved in, in not building these parking spaces, they saved half a billion dollars. So that's a big savings for those renters and those owners who who wound up living in those buildings.
0: What about the claim that gets made sometimes that like by reducing free parking at an apartment or an office or by charging more for parking or reducing it, period, that like the people who will pay for it the most are the people who can least afford it?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm sensitive to that. But I think that there's an assumption there that free parking is equitable because um, things that are free are just good for people who, who have less money. And that does not consider the externalities that come along with free parking, right? So if you have free parking in an in-demand location where lots of people want to park, you are going to, by definition, have scarce parking. And when you have scarce parking, that means that somebody who needs to drive in and work with their car, like say a plumber or a cleaner or a locksmith or a delivery guy, is going to have to search for parking. How many minutes is that going to take? How much, how much money are those minutes of their time worth? The answer is not nothing. And I think there's an assumption in that, 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 you know, poor people's time isn't worth a lot. So, so the system in which they drive around in circles forever looking for parking is beneficial to them. And I don't think that's true. I think a lot of people who work with their cars recognize that not being able to find parking is a major impediment of doing business. And, um, You see this in the fines that people who drive delivery trucks in congested urban areas rack up. I mean, thousands of dollars a year spent on fines. And so that, to me, is one of the externalities of free parking. If you don't make it possible for people to park, you force them to park illegally, and then they have to bear the consequences of that. And I don't think there's anything equitable about that. And then the larger picture, perhaps, is that free parking and the hunt for parking and the territoriality. And the political situation that runs downstream from that policy decision is extremely uh, – has led to a situation in which it is impossible for us to build more infill housing, to build more affordable housing, to build more housing in the neighborhoods where people most want to live and that are closest to jobs and other amenities. And so um, that too is an externality of free parking and I think maybe the question to ask is not could we make it cheaper to park here but could we make it cheaper to live here? Uh, because I think a free parking space is a, a pretty lousy consolation prize um, if you've been forced out of your neighborhood to a peripheral neighborhood where you have to commute.
0: Well, I mean, parking minimums have fallen in all of those places that you've talked about, states even. Has that solved it? You know, are there are there other challenges going forward that need to be fixed or is this kind of the holy grail?
1: Um, we're seeing some progress. I mean, there, there's other opposition to building parking light projects, not just from tenants and owners who want to drive, need to drive, want a parking space, but also from banks who don't like lending to projects that don't have uh, ample parking, Um, from uh, the federal government in many cases, which still maintains a policy of, uh, you know, like the Department of Housing and Urban Development, they don't want to see projects that don't have enough parking. Um, But I think the biggest one is that building projects with less parking, some of it is about unlocking efficiency, recognizing that the parking was overbuilt and we could get by with fewer spots, and that would be okay. But some of it indeed is about hoping for a society in which fewer trips are made by car. And for that to happen, parking is the great determinant of whether people drive, but it's not the only one. And cities need to uh, think about their streets at the same time as they're thinking about their land uses. And so we can build a lot of housing with no parking, but if that housing is still on a street where guys in pickup trucks are going 55 miles an hour and there's some bike lane that's painted into the third lane, nobody's going to want to bike their kids to school there, right? And so like the transition towards making some of these shorter trips on foot, on bike, et cetera, really depends on um, making changes to the streets as well as making changes to the land uses.
0: How do you think we can solve this mess? Like, what do you think needs to happen nationwide in order for parking to be redefined, to be fixed, to be available, but not be like the big honkin' problem it is?
1: I think several of the reforms that are already in progress are very promising. And those include like better management of street parking by making people pay for it, no longer requiring people to build parking with every new unit of housing. Those are pretty obvious, I think. And and I I think the places that are putting them into place are are seeing results. Um, But the larger thing is that obviously America is a very car dependent society. And I don't think that any parking reformers expect that we're going to suddenly have lots of households who want to go car free. That said, the median American household has 2.2 cars. So when we talk about reducing the role of parking and driving in American life, we're not saying you can't drive anymore, you're not going to need a car, we're saying maybe on the margins, some of those trips you make, you could make another way than driving. And that depends, again, both on being smarter about the provision of parking, but also being smarter about the design of streets, which, by the way, of course, is related to parking. I mean, the reason you can't have a, a good bus lane or a protected bike lane or safe intersections where kids can cross is often because cities are reluctant to remove parking spaces from, for example, around intersections.
0: Are there some cities that you can point to as like a guiding light, things that you think we should try that other cities have implemented maybe around the world? You know, I I wrote
1: recently about the changes that are underway in Paris. And I think the mayor and her team in Paris are showing what to Americanize looks like uncommon um, forthrightness in their discussion of (laughs) why barking is a problem for the city. Um, And they've begun to remove parking spaces by the thousands and tens of thousands from the center of the city explicitly with the goal of encouraging less traffic because they want fewer emissions, they want cleaner air, they want people who need to get places to be able to get places on time. And one of the changes that's come of this, which is really cool, is that emergency vehicle response times have gone down. So fire engines and ambulances are now able to make it where they were going faster than before because removing parking leads to less traffic and that leads to clearer streets. And so there's this kind of like You know, the whole thing is like an ecosystem. I don't know if you've ever seen the video about the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone National Park. But like, you know, you you set one thing in motion and and all this other stuff starts to happen. I think that's what Paris is seeing with parking. And the things they've done with those parking spaces are also interesting. They've created uh, restaurant patios like some American cities. They've closed streets to cars outside schools. They've created bus lanes, bike share, planted trees, all that stuff. So all that stuff is I think, within the realm of possibility for an American city.
0: We have links in the show notes to Henry Grabar's new book, Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World, as well as some of his recent writing on Slate about that very subject. One of my most delightful parking experiences was actually on a road trip two years ago in Belgium where I visited the city of Ghent and was able to park just outside the inner city at a lot that was just next to a tram stop and then take the tram in to a stop just a block away from my hotel. It was super smooth and just a beautiful way to blend public transit and private cars. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.